0: Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything, a podcast about getting poised for greatness. Today, our topic is pioneering. We are lucky to be at the headquarters of Adafruit Industries with L'Amour Freed. She's the first woman ever to grace the cover of Wired and the founder of this real deal maker of open source electronics in New York City, which made $33 million last year. We're going to talk about what L'Amour's built, how she's got here, and how it's changed her. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ready for Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel-powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com. Hello, Lamour. Hey there. <laughs> so we are very, very excited uh, to be here
1: uh, at your headquarters. Uh, We're in a factory. Yes. We're in a factory in Manhattan. There's like boxes and machinery and equipment and pallet jacks. Yes, and it's a very, very special
0: time to be here at Adafruit because there's this moment of time where you have a factory in New York that's an active working maker of parts and all kinds of things. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what um, somebody can see when they come here.
1: Yeah, this is our factory. We're in West Soho. Um, a little bit west of um, 6th Ave. Now it's called Hudson Square, but I call it West Soho. And um, this is, you know, lower Manhattan. It's uh, historically the printing district. So all these warehouses in this area, like they are where you walk around, you're like, that's weird, there's warehouses, it's not just storefronts. This was where uh, all the letterpress printing happened. In fact, there's a printing press still on the fifth floor. There's a factory uh, upstairs that does printing. And so, you know, once in a while you'll hear like, ka-chunk, 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 as they do the letterpressing. So All these buildings here were uh, large and designed to have huge equipment in them, Uh, also warehousing and stuff. But the the printing industry has moved, it seems to be mostly online. A lot of it has moved um, overseas or to other locations. We don't need to have as much localization. And so when we were looking for a place for the Edford factory, this is one of the few areas in Manhattan that is zoned for manufacturing. It's also Midtown. If you've ever been to Midtown Manhattan around Times Square, those are also very tall buildings, very industrial. Those are zoned for um, fabric work. So those are really only to be used for you know, sewing and, and costuming and, and embroidery and all the other things that go along with the fashion industry. But we really like this area because it's, it's just this very industrial zone. It's in transition, but we were still able to get a place that's zoned for the kind of light manufacturing that we do here. And
0: why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what that <coughs> light manufacturing is and sort of how what you're
1: doing is different. What we do differently is we don't outsource all of our manufacturing to China, which is pretty much what everybody does. Sometimes they go to you know Taiwan or they go to Japan or they go to the Philippines, but it's pretty much all happening in Asia, some of it in Mexico as well. What we do here is we actually do that electronic manufacturing here. So we actually have machines called pick and places and reflow ovens. And these are machines that pick up Minuscule little parts, I mean like less than a millimeter by millimeter or as large as like two inches by two inches, like GPS modules and cell modules and accelerometers and gyroscopes and resistors and capacitors and LEDs. Basically if you opened up your cell phone or your tablet or your computer, what, the circuit board inside there, that's the kind of stuff that we're making and manufacturing here in Manhattan. Did you ever think that you'd be working in a factory? Well, I always really like to build stuff with my hands, so I'm, I'm really happy that I'm working in a factory, but you know, I think that for a lot of people when they're going to school, there's sort of this expectation of like, well, you're gonna just be working at a computer screen and you'll have like a rendering or a drawing, and then, you know, some magical L somewhere will make it. Uh, what's cool about doing the manufacturing here is I get to design something and then turn around and there's the machine that makes it. And so a lot of the difficulty in manufacturing is is what is commonly called the DFM stage, the design for manufacturing stage. I know it's a boring acronym, but it's what it is. Once you design something, there's this rendering, this beautiful drawing, but actually getting it into physical reality, that's that's very challenging. And if you don't know the quirks of the machines, that's where you get like kind of caught up, you don't realize oh there's yield and there's mistakes and well, it can't be that precise or it scratches it sometimes. So being right like next to the machine as an engineer means I can revise and adapt so quickly. If something isn't working out on the equipment, I know instantly, not like two three weeks later, as is pretty common if you outsource manufacturing. Yeah, that becomes really sort of
0: an instrument that you learn to play.
1: Exactly, like yeah. you know that you know that every every feeling and tweak and what it can do and how fast and. And so that is really important to us because you know, we are here in Manhattan and you know, everybody of course comes in and the first thing they say is like, why aren't you in New Jersey? Or like you know, Connecticut or Pennsylvania, this is so expensive, you're in Manhattan. You are in the most expensive place. Like this makes no sense whatsoever. But what we do have is the speed that we're forced to do. We're, we have to, we can't just rely on cheap rent and cheap labor, we pay people very well, we have a very beautiful space here, we have really good equipment. But that means that we have to be very fast. We have to do a very good job. We have to have have very high quality. And so that's why doing the manufacturing in-house allows us to maintain that high quality because it isn't like this mysterious black box. We're there. We see it day in, day out. We look at all the products coming off the machines and know exactly what's going on with our manufacturing, with our inventory, with our yield. If something changes, we catch it very, very fast. Yeah.
0: Um, Now that we have a sort of a sense of, um what you've built. I'm really interested in how we got there, right? I've read a little bit about uh, sort of your childhood and how you used to sort of uh, break apart uh, VCRs and how uh, you modified a Radio Shack tone dialer. Uh, yeah. How do you get, how as a child do you sort of get into that? What? Tell me a little bit about uh, sort of uh, what you used to play with and how, what motivated you?
1: Well I think that I, I, I grew up at exactly this time and when I look at friends and other people who are entrepreneurs um, who are about my same age. This was the birth of like the internet and the birth of like modems. Like, you know, when I was in grade school, high school, you could buy a modem, which at the time was really revolutionary. It allowed you to connect with other people and share information. And so I really got involved in sort of this, you know, hacker culture of learning and experimenting and breaking and understanding and sort of becoming more one with technology. Computers were also becoming like PCs, everyone was having them and Pocket electronics was becoming more popular, so it was kind of this perfect time to grow up with this technology and understand it so that when I went to school, I kind of saw the history of like, okay, here's what electronics was like in the 80s and the 90s, well, I'd like to bring it back to how it used to be and what lessons can I take from from my earlier childhood experience with electronics that was less glossy than it is now and sort of reintroduce that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. So so breaking
0: apart a VCR, mm-hmm. right? Taking it apart piece by piece. What's what's that experience like and and what does it do creatively? What does it spark creatively for you? As a, as a kid, what was it what was interesting about it?
1: Well, I think that and I still take stuff apart. I mean, what's funny is, you know, if you look at like the most popular um, like blog posts on a gadget or whatever, it's always a teardown. You know, people actually do like to see what's inside their electronics and and gadgets. I think that you know, electronics more than almost any other kind of technology is it's encased, it's in a box, and there's sort of the input, the output, there's the button and the display and then there's a headphone jack, but there isn't, there's no explanation of what it is. It's just like, well this records a TV show or you know, this plays your music, but it doesn't explain how and why and for me, I want to know why, and I think a lot of people do. Like, they, they want to know, like, well how does this locate myself anywhere in the world. Like, that's weird, how does GPS work? People want to know that stuff. And so, that's kind of what I'm trying to do, is like, show people how they can understand that stuff that they're curious about. Because like, people are curious, we're curious animals.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it just strikes me that, um, just like uh, someone who like, plays a musical instrument, right? You sort of learn the limitations of a violin, you learn the limitations of your own body, say if you're playing a piano, right? Mm. Um, if you were playing with circuits, you sort of understand Okay, this worked or I didn't put this piece in the right way. you sort of understand um, the the limits of the uh, materials:
1: Yes, there's definitely materials just as somebody who works with you know wood or paint or clay or stone, you know they understand the difference between working with copper or brass or concrete or you know balsa wood or pine. All these materials have there's pros and cons to all of them, and when you're engineering, it's it's basically basically the same thing. Engineering sort of grew out of that, right? You're you decide, well, which module, which interface, which circuit should I use, which design, and how does that trade off with price and performance and capability? And so it is a little bit of like this juggling game where you're you're sort of taking all these ideas and you're trying to form them into a cohesive design element. Much like you know, if you're if you're sitting down and you're improvising at a piano. You know, you tried a couple chords and you're like, okay, that went well with that, but how can I string that into a, a feeling? You know, you could I'm not I don't do that much user experience, or user interface design, but when we do design kits and products, I do think of like the full experience. What are you trying to learn? What's the end game and how can I sort of bring them to that final feeling or learning experience basically by soldering or by programming, which is very unusual, but I think you can do that. You can get people to have an experience where at the end they say, oh, I learned something, I understand this. And then you know what we do a lot with products and kits is that you know people will build a project, and you know, they can build a project as it's tutorialized. It's like you follow step one, step two, step three, you, you do it. You know, it's basically like you play chopsticks, right? And then after they've completed that, they usually have some sense of accomplishment. Okay, I was able to make this thing just as it's supposed to. It, like, I paint by numbers, I finished it, it looks like the thing it's supposed to. But many people after that feel, okay, well, I have comfort with this, you know, construction. I want to now take it and do, like, synthesis with it. I want to take that and then improvise upon it. And so they'll take the designs and then adapt them for their own purposes which is very, very common. For example, you know, we have a, a project where you, know, you have a, a sensor that connects to a drawer, and so when somebody opens a, you know, your, your dresser drawer, it can send you an email or a tweet. That's like an internet connected project. That's a fun project. It's like, yeah, you know, is it my little brother coming and looking for my diary sort of project. But then we have people say, oh, I adapted that so that when my mom leaves my window open, it tells me because like, we have mice come into the apartment if I leave the window open so it reminds me to close it. So they're taking the same ideas but they're adapting them to their own needs. And then for people who want to take it beyond that, you know, they're like, okay, this is so interesting that not only have I synthesized my own projects but I'm actually just interested in how it works Then they can get to the analysis and then we usually have documentation for each project like, okay, here is what's going on in each step. Here's how the power supply works. Here's how the sensor works. Here's how we actually send you that email or that tweet. And then they get really deep inside of it. And then usually they become engineers. Yes. because they're just like, this is like, personally fulfilling for me. But you don't have to be an engineer. You can still go through those step A and step B of just construction and synthesis without going to school for four years.
0: Of course, of course, yeah. Um, that process of sort of uh, tearing something down, um, oh, what did, what do you think it taught you about problem solving?
1: Well, it definitely, sh- uh, if you take apart stuff, it definitely shows you how engineers cut costs because it's kind of fascinating to see Every little thing that they do is for a reason. When you take something apart, especially mechanically or electronically, you, look at, you have to figure out what were they thinking and, and what problems were they solving. And I think that's kind of a good experience, because you have to have the empathy of putting yourself in another person or an engineer or another user's you know, body and say, like, OK, well, why did they do the backlight this way? Why did they choose this GPS chip? Sometimes it's a stupid reason. Like, the marketing person said so. And you can kind of figure that out, because you're like, this makes no sense. But sometimes you're like, oh, I understand what they're doing. This is very cute and tricky and, and, and neat. And so um, if you're looking at something somebody else built, I- instead of just saying like, OK, it's wrong and bad and stupid and critiquing it, try to figure out why did they make, you know, don't have the assumption of stupidity. You have the assumption of, they were, these were decisions were made for a reason. And then that's kind of when you learn, rather than just sort of becoming um, solipsistic and sort of saying like, okay, well, whatever I would do is the best thing. Maybe other people have good ideas as well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. What um, sort of uh, impact does uh, the process that you guys have with these kits and with the open source, um, what um, impact do you think that has on uh, sort of people uh, being a little bit more empowered about their electronics and about the gadgets that they use?
1: Oh, t- absolutely. I mean, that's like the whole goal for me, <laughs> so I hope so. I mean, if I, if I found it wasn't, I'd be kind of sad. But um, the, the, the goal for me is, you know, we are surrounded by electronics. You, you have your phone on your lap right now. Yes. Uh, but how it does what it does is very alien. And sort of in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was more of a culture of, you know, you would do ham radio and you would build it, or you would make your own alarm clock, or you'd get these kits and you would build your own television. And so it, it was, in a sense, very hardcore, um, you were expected to know a lot of details about the electronics, and it was it was meant for a very specific subset of the population. Pretty much you were 30 to 50, white, upper middle class, male, lived in the suburbs. That was kind of it. I mean, I'm sure there was other people, but that was, kind of, you could tell, I mean, I have like ad, uh, old catalogs and magazines, and then you're flipping through the photos, and you're like, yep, 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 like building your home stereo sure. system, like I see exactly what this is, for oh, guys in, in short
0: uh sleeved shirts and the skinny ties oh yeah. yeah no there's actually this is where
1: there was one ad where like the guy's working on his home stereo and the like wife comes in with a pot roast and it says like finish your home stereo before like your wife has dinner ready and i'm like it's wow this is awesome <laughs> it's very convenient i would love that that'd be great uh but i think that you know and then we had a little bit of a, a period of time where there was a lot of consumer electronics you know the 80s was a very strong consumer electronics period like PCs and, and the internet and all that stuff in the 90s as well. But what's interesting is that all of this technology that allows us to make cell phones and computers and laptops, these sensors and these batteries and these technologies, like everything became really, really cheap. So the kind of projects that you could build in the 50s were basically like, OK, you built like an AM radio or you could build like a simple television or a stereo and that was kind of it. Like there wasn't really much else you could do. Like I mean you had projects but they were very limited. There was like this kind of tube amp and that kind of tube amp. Now with sensors and displays and these portable technologies and solar and like human health monitoring, like you can do so much because all this stuff has come onto the market as like a, um, what's the word? commodity, Yeah, it's very commoditized. You can build like the most amazing stuff. So like, you know, like next to us is Becky with her wearable setup. A kid in grade school can now build a skirt with an accelerometer that used to be, that was developed for NASA, you know, it's, you know 20 years ago and now is in every cell phone. And LEDs that, you know, were also like hugely expensive and can do like RGB, which was totally crazy like 10 years ago to have these be like a dollar or two. And for like 20 bucks build a skirt that uh, when she dances it twinkles along or responds to music. That kind of technology was not really possible. It wasn't there and it wasn't $20. And now it is. And so the goal here is to look around and find all this commoditized hardware and make it easy for people who want to learn electronics but maybe don't want to just build a tube amp which is fine there's nothing wrong with tube amps but they want to build something else they want to be creative they want to build a skateboard that lights up when they do tricks or they want to have a glowing unicorn horn on their forehead or you know they want to have this project that tweets them when their little brother opens up their diary you know all of these fun projects that are in a sense magical are now very easy and well within the grasp of anybody who is in grade school, who just wants to spend a little bit of time. And I see this as sort of like, you know, you can do robotics with First Robotics and and play with Lego. And then you can also do this very creative, very hands-on, very artistic kind of electronics and, and make it more comfortable for people to get their hands dirty with that. And if they want to be engineers, great, but if they don't, that's fine too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I, I just I, I find it so interesting because it sort of demystifies an area that had been closed off uh, only to people that had maybe a certain sort of education or a certain um, access. You know, I, that's what I find so interesting about it. Yeah.
1: You know what? I went, I went to school for engineering. and It was great. I loved it. But the problem with going to school with engineering is that you basically show up and like not even within the first year, maybe the second year, they're like, this is you know this is an electron, and and the electron, you know, when you pull the electron away from like the proton, like you have this electromotive force, and then like you have waves, and then you do EM. And and then you do Maxwell's equations. And so like it isn't until like late junior year when you <laughs> actually get to like learn what a resistor is because you're so busy like, learning like the row and the, the diode built-in voltage and like, like you, you're modeling a transistor. And, and it's great, I can like model a transistor, like I can do Miller capacitance calculations, but that that is totally useless for people who just want to build a skirt that twinkles when music plays. Like they don't need to know Nyquist theorem, they just need to know. When there's audio, it does something. And so for people who want to be engineers, I, I do suggest going through that process because you'll learn the, deeply in, in, a, in a way that you would not learn on your own core building blocks of engineering and electronics. However, it's totally traumatizing to anybody else. That's not a way to teach somebody electronics in a way that will make them happy and creative and want to do it unless They're just like super geeky and into it in the first place. So if you want to get more people doing this, you have to come up from the opposite direction to say, here's a project you want to build. You want to build a TV gun. It turns off a TV from 300 feet away. That's awesome. This is a great prank technology. You want that, you have to build it. And then get them into it that way. And then you can teach them about like IR LEDs and microcontrollers and programming. Do it after they've had the positive experience, rather than making them like work for three years.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In building, um, you know, this amazing place, um, there are um, lots of um, sort of uh, challenges you've had along the way. Things have happened, and you have to sort of work through them. You know, what's something that maybe happened early on that sort of helped you, taught you a certain way of problem solving or a way of overcoming challenges that's been powerful to you?
1: I think that one of the things that I realized um, pretty early, I hope, was that. You know, when you when you give people a positive experience when they purchase something from you, it actually kind of makes everything easier. And one thing that allowed Adafruit to differentiate itself is there were other companies that were making kits and these projects and selling them, but the documentation was really, really weak. The bar for documentation was really low, like really, like if you got a piece of paper with anything on it, like you were lucky. So I sort of came at it with like, okay, well let's go at it in a different way. Instead of getting like a crummy manual that's like Xeroxed, you know, I'm going to have a web page that has like beautiful photos and videos from like YouTube or whatever, flash animations and have people have a very good experience. Show them how to do it step by step by step rather than kind of saying like, well, you're on your own, which is how have everybody else did because they were sort of lazy. They're like, well, you know, the the advanced people in the community don't need all this handholding, so I'm going to skip it. Instead, we kind of went the opposite direction. We said, OK, we're going to do tons of hand-holding, and that allowed us to reach way more people and create a bigger market. Like, we, we made the pie larger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um,
0: let me talk about your cell phone, right? Okay. So, I mean, your lack of your cell phone. I don't right? have a cell phone. I know. So but I have a cell phone jammer. Well, yes, for your, your uh, thesis project, yeah. yes. <laughs> Tell me about not having a cell phone in this modern world in New York uh, in 2015. How do you operate differently? How does it? How do you think you you think differently because you don't have a cell phone?
1: Well, I don't really know because I don't have a cell phone. You
0: see folks like me with this in their laps, and yeah.
1: I totally see the benefit of a cell phone. Like, don't get me wrong, it's it's great, but phone calls are very disruptive. I find that I don't really need a cell phone because people who want to talk to me usually they can schedule it and they can come by, and then you know I can call them on the landline or something, or I can. I can borrow a cell phone, but I, I just feel like I'm like less distracted. I just have like one method of communication, which is email. It allows me to at least stay focused. I can kind of put it away because the most important thing is I have to be able to focus on engineering and designing a product. And I need like four to six hours of just absolutely no distraction, just like pure focus. And it's very, very hard to get that if there's something shiny that's always there. Yeah, yeah. I guess what strikes me about
0: it is that um, it's a different way to go uh, about your day, right? You're thinking differently, you know, and I guess that to me that gets into the pioneering aspect of it, where it's like looking at the world differently and giving yourself the space to work in it differently. I mean, am I just making too much of that?
1: No, I mean, I think that being able to. giving yourself the ability and space and having the compassion to let yourself focus on something is super key. And a lot of people don't let themselves have that. Also, it's kind of like cheating because out of a cell phone, nobody expects to call me or text me. You know, like if there's the expectation of like, I texted you, you didn't reply, that's a problem. But if there's no expectation of it, then people just don't do it. They just learn. To move around it. Sure. When what's a trait that you
0: think um, has sort of helped you both build this place and sort of uh, plan for the future?
1: I think the the action that really makes Adafruit work right now is we hire and promote from within. And so people who come into Adafruit they work usually in shipping or gathering or they do um, some of the you know the hourly work they do the beginner work they get acquainted familiar with what we do here with the words we use like the folk knowledge that every company has even if it's documented there's just like oh yeah that's how the shipping system works or yeah the label printer always does that sort of sort of knowledge and then you know then we slowly and surely promote them into management positions or positions where um, their team leads or they take on their own departments and so we don't have the uh, this cold water shock that I see a lot of companies go through when they bring in outside consultants or outside MBAs. Nothing wrong with MBAs. They're wonderful, but you know what I'm talking about. They, they don't come in and sort of like splash cold water on everybody and and put everybody into shock. Uh, instead, it's, it's a sort of gradual move into like, oh yeah, that person was in Fab and now they're leading like the production scheduling. That makes a lot of sense. You know, they've done this, they know what the work is like, they know what to expect and they're part of this team and this family. And surprisingly few companies I see do that. They always seem to want to do executive searches. And that's very unusual to me because like how can you bring somebody in who used to sell orange juice and now they're going to be selling clothing? I mean maybe there's some similarities there. But to me that's very alien. Like it doesn't seem to make sense. Like we have a very good thing going here. We should have the people who are doing well rise up and take on more responsibility. And that's made the company so stable because it's it's so familiar. Everybody knows everybody. There's no surprises. There's no shock and awe on a day-to-day basis. There's no like totally crazy ideas of like oh let's like outsource all of our shipping. It's like, Wait what? Like no, we went through this. You haven't been here for the many years we discussed this and we said no and here's why. Like we don't have to reintroduce all this information over and over again.
0: Sure. There's that thorough familiarity much like with taking a part of ECR. It's like you sort of you understand it. You know how it works. You know how yes. it walks and talks, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's
1: not really a trait. A trait, no, I know. but it's sort of a
0: way of, a way of a being. A way of being. Yes, a yeah. way of walking and talking. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we, uh, we are actually uh, out of time, Lamora, okay. uh, but um, I want to thank you very much for uh, everything. For it was wonderful
1: to chat with you.
0: It's wonderful as always, um, we're so pleased to be here. Um, uh, thanks so much for opening up your factory, and um, uh, to listen to more podcasts from this series, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and follow us on SoundCloud. And before we go, one last word from our sponsor. Ready For Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel powered 2-in-1s, you get performance and mobility power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com.